You're listening to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. In April 2020, I had been sitting on the toilet, taking a break from my inpatient training at one of our hospitals to prepare for California surge, when I read this quote on the bathroom wall. And once the storm is over, you won't remember how you made it through, how you managed to survive. You won't even be sure whether the storm is really over. But one thing is certain, when you come out of the storm, you won't be the same person who walked in. That's what this storm's all about, by Haruki Murakami. COVID-19 has certainly been life-changing, and maybe it was meant to be life-changing. Who would have ever thought that our country could be so debilitated and that our lives could change just like that? Who would have ever thought shelter-in-place could have lasted for three months? And in California, we are again in -in shelter-in-place. But perhaps the truth is, if we want to get on with life, we have to be cautious now. Who knew that things could be kind of stressful and weirdly pleasant at the same time? Seeing your immediate family all the time could be stressful and good. My poor husband, he's a total workaholic and loves his work. And because I had to go into work, he did all of the homeschool for three months while falling behind on his own work. There was yelling, cussing, crying, tantrums, laughter, and an extremely high marshmallow and ice cream consumption in our house. And any little privacy ended for me when my kids were roughhousing and finally broke my sliding bathroom door so that it was permanently stuck in the open position. My bathroom is my thinking place. Thoughts come to me when I'm on the toilet. Even though you think you know your family members, the pandemic has been a time to really see them perhaps for who they are, as you really have no social itinerary and there's nowhere else to go. I never actually knew my husband could be at home like that, that he would take it upon himself to homeschool our kids. His cursing did increase, but still. I don't think we really understood how creative our kids are, or how they love to write stories, or how resilient they could be, even if the fighting also escalated. It's interesting that during the pandemic, everyone has been asked to stop to try to control this thing. The idea that perhaps if we all stopped at the same time and we showed caution in our lives, that we can contain the spread. And we aren't just stopping for ourselves, as one would think, but for the collective purpose. We are really doing it for each other, for all of us. The idea that we maintain our health so that we don't infect another, a person who could actually die from this. Many people in the world have died from the pandemic, close to 1.8 million deaths at this point. Our worlds have stopped to function normally. People are asked to work from home, some are furloughed, some are laid off. And I think with so many of us at home, I can't help but think about how we've been working. I wonder about the lack of balance that exists in all of our lives. So much of our time is spent working, 
Do we actually need to physically be there five days a week or more? Would it be possible to work shorter days and perhaps be more efficient? Were we even happy? And if you've been struggling, why have you been struggling? What have you been thinking about during this time? What did you enjoy doing with the extra time that you found in your day? During the earlier days of the pandemic, I actually got home at 5.30 p.m. at a decent hour, not my usual 7.30 p.m. I had more time to do stuff with my kids. Granted, it was making them dinner, but still, I got to see them eat and talk with them. And now that I've quit my job and am working on this project, something that I love, it's both nerve-wracking and enjoyable as I work on my now and prepare for my future. The pandemic has been complicated. It's caused me to think about a lot of things. Sometimes it really was uncomfortable. There were and are a lot of moments when my anxiety feels high, but it has not been entirely unpleasant. Yeah, sure. I still wish I had a bathroom door, but I've never seen so many people exercising outside in our neighborhoods. I've never been so thankful in my life to be outdoors. I've never exercised with my kids until the pandemic. It's been beautiful to see the resiliency of humanity, that we actually need each other and that social connection is important, that life may not be life without all of us. And I think we are reminded of that when we are separated. It's sad to see people so sick in the hospital, and because of COVID, they are so alone and isolated in their rooms. But it was also heartwarming to see the videos of quarantined Italians singing to each other from their balconies and cheer each other on. Or the story of the 72-year-old Italian priest, Don Giuseppe Buradelli, who had been suffering from a respiratory condition for some time and gave up his ventilator purchased by his parish to save the life of a younger person. He made that sacrifice on March 15, 2020 and died three days later. I've never heard birds chirp so loudly in the morning, so loud it seemed like they were screaming, Morning, yo! There were unexpected side effects from the pandemic. In Venice, as the country was in lockdown, locals noticed that the water in the city's canals looked much clearer, such that you can see small fish swimming in the water. During China's national coronavirus shutdown in February, air pollutant levels plummeted. According to NPR, Lauren Summer on March 4, 2020 reported that air pollution levels have dropped by roughly a quarter over the last month, as coal-fired power plants and industrial facilities have ramped down so employees in high-risk areas can stay home. Levels of nitrogen dioxide, a pollutant primarily from burning fossil fuels, were down as much as 30%, according to NASA. In the U.S., during the quarantine, L.A. had the longest stretch of clear air since 1980. According to Elijah Chilland from Curbed Los Angeles on April 3, 2020, March had 24 days, including 20 days in a row, with a daily air quality below 50, denoting air that's healthy even for people sensitive to pollution, those with respiratory issues or heart problems, for instance. However, during the Trump presidency, the administration has changed environmental policies. The U.S. withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement in June 2017. 
The clean power plan requires that the energy sector cut carbon emissions by 32% by year 2030, but in October 2017, it was rolled back. The EPA loosened regulations on toxic air pollution and rules were relaxed around releasing methane flares. Seeing how nature has been thriving during our quarantine, it has made me wonder if the truth in fact is that we need Mother Earth to survive, and perhaps Mother Earth needs for us to all act better. And perhaps if this could be the case, then our relationship with our planet needs to change before we totally destroy it. And it was during this time that George Floyd was senselessly and brutally killed. Amud Arbery, 25 years of age, another African-American man, was shot to death after going out on an afternoon jog by a father and son. It's strange to think that during this period of quarantine, that truths have risen to the surface, and the thing about truths is that it can really hurt and be painful to acknowledge. The truth that racial injustices still run deep and has been running deep forever. But perhaps it's when we see the truth and acknowledge the truth can we actually start to do something about it. General Milley, who had taken part in Trump's walk across Lafayette Square for the Bible-holding photo op where military had used tear gas and rubber bullets to clear the area of peaceful protesters, apologized for his role in the Trump's photo op. He gave a speech on June 11, 2020, and according to the New York Times, After expressing his disgust over the killing of Mr. Floyd, he stated that the protests that have ensued not only speak to his killing, but also to the centuries of injustice toward African Americans, General Milley said. What we are seeing is a long shadow of our original sin in Jamestown 401 years ago, liberated by the Civil War, but not equal in the eyes of the law until 100 years later in 1965. But perhaps the truth is that although the law states that everyone is equal, we've really been hypocritical and not acted that way. Like, why are there so many army bases named after Confederate officers from the Civil War? Over 10 years ago, my Ivy League educated friend and I were having a conversation, and he said something I've never forgotten. I asked him what was harder. Was it harder to be black or was it harder to be gay? and he said it was harder to be black. I remember at the time it made me tremendously sad to hear that. I live in a really liberal, some would say hippie town, such that even I am at the point now where I occasionally think about hugging a tree. Bergenstocks are very popular, as is crunchy granola here. I had a patient I had briefly met, and he was changing his insurance, so I was going to change providers, and he had asked me before he left, if I knew of any doctors in town who would be willing to work with an African-American patient. It made me so sad that he even had to consider that in a town like this. I realized I had no idea what his experiences had been. The law states that we are equal, but we have not acted that way. And why have we not acted that way? What fears are we holding on to to prevent us from being our true and loving self? How is one life worth more than another? Why is a human, not a human, not a human? Who are we really to judge? It's one thing to work out inside head thoughts. I even struggle with judging my own kids inside my head. But work it out and don't actually act like the asshole.
Back in the day, St. Francis would preach, Your God is of your flesh. He lives in your nearest neighbor, in every man. He believed that nature itself was a mirror of God. He called all creatures, even birds, his brothers and sisters, and supposedly persuaded a wolf in Gubbio to stop attacking some locals if they agreed to feed the wolf. Fine. With the example of the birds, you could perhaps call him a little cray-cray, or you can also recognize his decency towards everyone and everything. And yeah, I'm a nerd that thinks about things on the toilet. But the prayer of St. Francis always shocks me and makes me wonder if we can choose to act better. And it goes, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. In Bronnie Ware's book, The Top 5 Regrets of the Dying, she writes about her experiences as an end-of-life caregiver. At one point, she described how family members interacted with her dying family member and how there were times when she didn't understand their interactions. And the way in which she learned to empathize with those family members was by asking herself, are they acting like that because of love or fear? Maybe our lives are never meant to be the same again. Life as we know it has stopped. But maybe this is not a bad thing. Today I'll be speaking with my friend, Dr. April Ferguson, about her experiences with COVID in the hospital. She is an infectious disease doctor at East Jefferson General Hospital in New Orleans and is also a really great and informative human being. Welcome to Lost or Found, Dr. April Ferguson. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Oh, thank you. And um, Dr. Ferguson, so before we begin, can you tell us about yourself? Yes. So I am an infectious disease physician. I'm currently living in New Orleans, Louisiana. I work in a small private practice with three other doctors at a community hospital. Um, that's about 400 and something beds. So it's pretty busy. Um, and I started with this job about a year ago. I moved out to Louisiana just within a couple months time for the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. In April, what was it like to work in the hospital during the early stages of the pandemic when there was no known adequate treatment? It was pretty amazing. It was. It seemed like it was. In a, it was in a movie. So first thing that you noticed was um, there was no family whatsoever. The, the hospital completely closed down any visiting. Um, then you noticed that there were very few doctors because all of the pretty much the only doctors that you saw at the hospital at that time were either the hospitalists, infectious disease doctors, pulmonologists, or kidney doctors the hallways of the hospital were empty and all of the, every single one of the doors would have the yellow isolation um, things hanging on them. And it, it, for each patient that you saw, as, as you still do now, it was an entire process of gowning, putting on the plastic covering, putting on your gloves, putting on your N95 mask, putting on the cloth mask over that, and then the face shield over on top of that, and just redoing this over and over again. Um, it, it was like something out of a movie, an apocalyptic movie, honestly. 
Yeah. And, you know, you said that you indicated that your bed was over 400 beds in the hospital. Were all the beds taken in New Orleans at the time? No. So the greatest limitation even now with COVID is not the number of beds that we have. It's really the amount of nurses that we have to take care of these patients. So at the most at our hospital, we had, I think, 130 COVID patients at one time. Um, most of the rest of the hospital was shut down or closed because all other patients just stopped coming. They, they were afraid to come to the hospital. Um, so I would say that was about the highest in general. So we had all three of our ICUs were fully, were fully COVID at that time. Um, and then we had a couple of floors to, for, for patients that were no longer needing the, the IC level. But um, now, I mean, even now we have one, one and a half ICUs devoted just to COVID and then um, sort of two wings of a floor that are, that's just devoted to COVID. April, how sick were the patients early on during the pandemic? Early on, um, well, because we were trying different kinds of medications, um, but many of them would help some. I mean, in the early days, when we were first using like azithromycin and Plaquenil, um, I would see some benefit in these patients. And the there were concerns about arrhythmias and, and it became sort of a politically charged medication to use Plaquenil. But in the beginning, we did see benefit with it. Um, and some of the patients were turning around. A lot of them were very sick, unfortunately, because we didn't have much for them. Many of them did end up on the ventilators. And the ones that didn't were the ones that were DNR. Many of them were very, very advanced in age. So they could have been, the majority being somewhere between 60, 70, and 80. Um, oftentimes they had comorbidities. Many of these patients were coming from nursing homes. So it's kind of a Sad thing to say, but honestly, many of the patients that died had a lot of things going on with them. And if COVID hadn't have come along, it would have been something else within the next year that caused them to pass. Many, it was much fewer patients. Yeah, they were chronically ill patients. Um, however, there was a portion of patients, a smaller, a very small portion, mind you, that were 65, 70, and that were in pretty good health that unfortunately ended up passing with COVID. Um, now it's a much different story. Um, but in the beginning, yes, we, you know, we were having patients die every week. You know, the mortality rate, like early on, if someone ended up on the ventilator, the mortality rate was really high, right? Um, it kind of depend. It really depended on, on how their health was at a baseline. Um, and especially if they were smokers, if they had COPD, the, you know, some, Asthma made it worse, but it's not nearly as bad as a smoking history or COPD with emphysema. Um, I, I do have to say, in the end, most of our patients pulled through and were discharged. But um, yes, if you ended up on the vent, you sort of went to one of three ways. You either got off within a few days, fortunately, you turned around quickly. Two, you spent a long period of time on the vent. And then if we were able to get you off of the vent, it then took weeks for patients to be able to get out of the hospital um, or, or they passed. Yeah. It must have been so scary, though, to you know work then as an essential worker and not <laughs> clearly understand what we were dealing with. But, but was it scary? It was very scary. So I saw the very first COVID patient at our hospital um, down in the emergency room. And I clearly remember um, gowning and going through the process and being in the little um, room, the little outside room, the, um, before you actually go into the, the airborne isolation room. 
and thinking, okay, you know, I'm, I'm about to go in and I'm, I'm going to see a patient that very likely has this virus. And I had to, I felt afraid of it. Um, but I was also devoted to figure to learning this thing and to figuring it out. And I just very methodically went through each of my steps for gowning and making sure that I was safe, as safe as I could be. Um, at that time, that was still when we were um, screening for people coming from China. <laughs> or at that time, that was right at the time that um, Texas was first starting to have their outbreak. So if you had been to Texas, and that's what this patient had been. Um, in retrospect, what was interesting was this was in the very early times where if you didn't meet that criteria, you had to be taken out of isolation. So this, this patient, I, she was in isolation for one night, but then she... They weren't even, they, the CDC wasn't even willing to test patients at that time unless they met very specific criteria, meaning coming from China or had, um, and so we couldn't even send off the test. So since we couldn't send off the test, we took her, we had to take her out of isolation. Oh my um, God. I was exposed to her in the beginning days. Um, as well as the rest of the staff. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, then who were they infecting? Like, you know, yeah, there oh were many God. errors in the very beginning stages when we just didn't realize um, how broadly spread it actually was already at that time. Yeah. I think there was really no information or understanding of what this was, you know? No. I mean, there was this misconception that it was a disease that existed outside of our country's borders. And then suddenly maybe it was just Texas or maybe it was just New York or just Florida. And then um, slowly but surely it's the understanding that it's everywhere. The truth about viruses is that eventually they will come to everyone. So I can, I cannot count the number of patients that I have treated that have been strictly home isolated. They've, they haven't left their house. You know, they've had groceries delivered. They've done absolutely everything. They've worn their masks, they've washed their hands, and they have no idea how they contracted this. Um, but it, it's a virus. Viruses make their way through all of human culture you know, given enough time. It's scary. You know... <laughs> April, how are you guys doing in terms of PPE in the beginning? Like, you know, having all the materials, the N95 masks? Uh, that was a nightmare. Um, so in the same way that all of those halls, every patient had that isolation carriage out in front, we didn't have enough. We ran out. We were running out quickly. And so the thing that we ended up doing and that we still end up doing is that we started preserving the PPEs for the nurses because they were the ones doing much more hands-on contact with the patient. Um, the physicians would um, basically, we, first thing is that we were we save our, our N95s. Like I keep my N95 until the strap breaks or, you know, it's, it's so that I feel that it's no longer filtering out viral particles. You're still re-wearing your N95 mask then? I keep it for, I, I keep mine. I've, I've, the one I'm using now I've had for at least a week and a half, two weeks. I use it. I keep it with me. I keep it in a little plastic bag. I take it out. I wear it for all the patients. I wear a um, cotton, I wear the disposable surgical mask over it. Mm -hmm. um, that's the one that I get rid of and I throw away after I've seen all the patients. But the N95 I, I keep because we still don't have a lot of them. We have enough that I can get a replacement. But at that time, they were hard to come by. Um, we ran out of the plastic gowns very quickly. And so there was even a time that we were having shortages of, of gloves. So um, 
it was just, it was reusing them. You would see them, the little plastic things, the gowns hung up outside of the doors all over the hospital. You would put it on, you would use it, see all the patients with that one, and then wipe it down with the disinfectant and hang it back up because someone else is going to need to use it. Oh my gosh, the yellow plastic gown you yeah, would... the little ones that you that we just rip off, you know, we see one yeah. page thing and we tear it off, shove it in the trash. There, there weren't any. Um, and so there were the, there were people volunteering at the hospital trying to get sheets of plastic, and they would cut it out in the sh- in that shape. They were terrible, but they still you know they served a purpose. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you can understand why like in New York there were nurses were wearing garbage bags if there are no PPE to protect it. Yeah, that's you know? exactly, that was basically what we were doing. Just sheets of plastic. I mean, a garbage bag w- would work. It's just something whatever you can do because it's just to protect from the droplets. Wow, but that yellow gown is porous and it's supposed to be disposable. How would you guys be disinfecting that? Um, well, at that time we were using more of the pla- it was the blue plastic ones. Oh, okay, the like the kind of like the garbage bag then. Yeah, the garbage bags. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. We do have the yellow one also. Um, and that one we just end up rewearing um because even now because they just hang it up and then the nurses will rewear those Usually if I use that, that that gown, I'll see all of my patients with it. I'll change my gloves between patients, but I'll, I'll wear that same gown and then and then I'll dispose of that one because the yellow ones are much harder to use the disinfectant to clean. Mm-hmm. How long were you wearing your N95, like in March and April? Uh, um, so in the very, very beginning first days when we still had a plethora of um, of these masks before before everything, before the, the tidal wave, basically, of patients, I had started collecting them. So I would get a new one each day, and I just started keeping them in my car. And so I had this little supply of N95 masks. Um, and then as soon as, as soon as we ran out of supplies, I just started using each one for a few weeks. I'll usually use it, even now, I use them for about two weeks, maybe. It depends on how many times a day I'm having to take them out and put it on. In the beginning, they're stiff and firm. Um, sometimes the straps break, and then I just have to throw them away. But once mm-hmm. they get too soft and pliable, then I feel that they're not. I don't know how well they're protecting me. So then I'll I'll exchange it for a new one. Yeah, isn't it so crazy, um, April? Like before COVID, after each patient, we would get rid of a N95 mask. You know, like medicine was practiced in the control setting. I mean, now it's just chaotic and I'm afraid what's going to continue to happen. But this is something that, you know, we as medical staff have never, ever dealt with. Well, I mean, I, so because I've traveled in developed countries and I've been in, and I've done medicine in in countries where, um, in resource, it it comes down to resource limited experiences. And yes, there are here, we have never been faced so directly with um, such a limitation of resources. I mean, there are small community and county hospitals in rural areas that deal with this, but to see the entire country needed at one time, I, I feel that it's a very good reminder that resources are not limitless, including things like water, clean water, and these kind of things that we take for granted because it comes out of the faucet. But once these things run out, they're they're out, and you have to you have to re look at how you practice medicine. And that's why um, even now, especially in the ICU, where you, so to get back to your initial question of what were the physicians doing, so many of the physicians stopped touching the patients, meaning stopped having hands-on contact. Ex, um, especially in ICU settings, you would look at the patient. You, could, you would see the patient. You could see all the monitors. 
Um, for the non-ICU patients, um, you would go to the door um, and you would communicate and talk with the patient and only the person who was actually doing hands-on touching of the patient, you would, um, would, you would ask the nurse about the physical exam, about what kind of issues they were having. You would use your labs, you would use your x-rays because there just simply wasn't enough PPE. And in the end, you wanted to protect the people that were having hands-on contact, unless you needed to. Of course, if there was something wrong, then you just put, you know, get your gown and use the PPE and you, you evaluate the patients. But there were so many of them, and many of them were doing quite stable. So you didn't necessarily need to use that gown just to listen to lungs that you already knew were normal because the chest X-ray was normal. Yeah, it's like wartime medicine. <laughs> yeah, very much so. In 2020, that's the irony of it. April, how did you deal with the stress? Like, how did you take care of yourself then? I chose infectious disease because I find it really interesting. And I, I, it, um, it fills me in, in, as I go through my days, I, in, I can feel exhausted and overwhelmed with the amount of work, but I so enjoy the work and I find it interesting that it was, it was not horrifically draining to me. Um, I find it interesting as I still find it now. I mean, I'm still treating anywhere between two to 10 or more COVID patients a day now. So um, I found it a, an interesting experience and an, odd, and an oddly rewarding experience, especially because a lot of these, parent, these patients even now are very afraid. Um, and, to, and it's very reassuring to them, I think, to have people come in and say, look, this is what we're going to do for you. And many patients have been okay. And lots of patients go home to their families and do just fine. Um, and at least now we have, even then we were trying medications. Um, there's a medication called remdesivir, which was initially made for Ebola, um, which they found to be effective in, in COVID-19. I was, my hospital was taking part in the initial studies with it, but to try to get, it, it was a huge process of applications for an emergency study use. It took me two weeks to get it for a single patient. Um, and that patient was passed. That patient was already um, very close to passing by the time we got the medication. Um, but now remdesivir, I can order for every patient that comes in that gets admitted. So it's a very different. Yeah. Like after a couple of months, it's standard of care now, remdesivir. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, and, and we have a couple, I have to say, we continue, my hospital has it's been nice because we continue to try to use each of the new treatments to see if it would work. And I feel like overall we had good, we've had really good outcomes. Um, right now we're using a medication called baricitinib. It's a JAK2 inhibitor. It inhibits the, the cascade um, of inflammation. And I'm, and I'm seeing good results with it. I feel like it's just going to get better and better, our treatments, I'm hoping. As we get more understanding with time. Yeah, Definitely. But I have to say, April, like, you know, knowing you, <laughs> I've always sensed your love for infectious disease, you know, like you're a badass in your own right. But I'm really glad that like you're letting your love drive you through like a really hard period. Yeah. I mean, it's this is well, having done, you know, having done other kinds of medicine for years um, in, in conjunction with infectious disease, I know what it's like to do kind of medicine that I don't find as, as gratifying or as interesting. And that's when I feel drained by it. That's when I feel like instead of 
filling me in some way. I feel like it's sort of sucking, <laughs> sucking the energy out. Um, and that's when, you know, I start really having to, that was when I had to figure out ways to deal with my stress and to deal with something that was making me unhappy. Whereas here I can get stressed out with the amount of patience and the amount of work, but not the work itself. God bless you. <laughs> April, can you describe some of the um, common medications and standard of care uh, for COVID patients today? You mentioned remdesivir. Sure. So um, the basics of COVID nineteen um, right now, as of as of as of today, because it's changed even just in the last week. Um, if a patient is sick enough, lots so lots and lots of people are going to get tested, find they have COVID, feel a little bit sick, show up to the emergency room. And if they are not needing oxygen, if their inflammatory markers are overall low, um, if their chest x-ray looks good, they'll be discharged home and said, look, just, you know, just, just stay at home, give yourself, you know, be there for the 10 days um, of your isolation and, um, you know, rest and monitor your oxygen. Many of them are given a, um, an O2 monitor to go home with. And if you notice that your stats are below or into the high 80s or if low 90s in some cases, then come back and we'll evaluate you. Because many patients will be fine in the first few days to a week. And then it's right around seven to 10 days that many patients, if they're going to have a bad course and they're going to decompensate, it's that weak marker that many of them will decompensate then. Um, and so then they come back. And if they're found to then be hypoxic, meaning their oxygen levels are in the high 80s or so, and usually by that time, the chest x-ray will show infiltrates with the infection. Then they can be admitted. Um, when they're, if they're sick enough to be admitted, then we give them, number one is oxygen. Um, that's really the most important thing for them. And then next, to try to stop the cytokine storm or that um, sort of cascade of inflammation, which causes so much trouble, um, we put them on steroids. It's usually dexamethasone, six milligrams IV daily for 10 days. Um, one of the reasons why in the early days we were having such issues with um, with the lungs and the kidneys would just pop and poop out. And many of these patients in the beginning were ending up on dialysis um, because what we realize now is that the COVID-19, when it causes that cascade of inflammation, it puts the patient into a hypercoagulable state. So they, they make all these little clots and those clots were showering the kidneys and killing them or knocking them out for a whole period and showering the lungs too, which is part of why the patient, so many patients ended up on the ventilator. Um, so now we give all patients, um, depending on one of their blood markers, the D-dimer, we'll give them either prophylactic anticoagulation or we'll give them full dose anticoagulation with Lovenox. Now the, um, the next, so those are the first two. You've got anticoagulation, well three, you've got oxygen, you've got steroids. Then it comes to the more COVID specific treatments um, everyone at this point now, if you're, if, as long as you meet the criteria of hypoxia and or greater than 50% infiltrates on your chest x-ray, then you'll get remdesivir. It's a, there's a loading dose and then you get four days of, um, of, of your regular dosing. And so it's basically a five day course IV once a day. And that's an antiviral medication, right? Remdesivir. It is. It is. I mean, it was, it was, it was. Um, not made for COVID-19. It was initially, they were trying to find something for Ebola, um, but they have found it to be effective. And it is effective, although there are now studies coming out say, showing that it may not be very effective. 
but I can't say it's better than nothing. <laughs> so, so, you know, everyone gets it unless their kidneys don't work well or their liver doesn't work well. Those are the two reasons that I wouldn't be able to use it. Um, we also are using convalescent plasma. This is where patients that have had COVID-19, um, they develop their own natural antibodies to it, and then they, um, they go through a screening process, and then they're able to donate their blood. We're able to take the plasma from that blood, which carries all the um, antibodies, and we infuse it into the patients. So pretty much everyone I'm giving both remdesivir and convalescent plasma if they agree to it. The plasma is usually just a single um, infusion, but some people, if they're not doing well, I'll give them a second infusion a few days later. The newest thing, and now I... I, I can I ask you regarding the convalescent plasma, all patients who get the antiviral remdesivir will get the plasma in your hospital then? Or is it the severely sick that get the plasma? Pretty much if you're sick enough to be admitted, we're giving the plasma at this point. We have so much of it. In the beginning, I mean, just like the remdesivir, in the beginning, you had to be heading towards the vent, getting really sick. But that was when our supplies were limited. So now we have so much more of it um, that we can use it much more freely. And so that's why we changed the criteria. We're constantly changing our, our prescription criteria as, as we get either new medications or as we get um, more, of, more of the medications. It was so limited before. Now, now I don't, even when we're starting to run low, we can reorder it and we get stock. So the supply is much better. And where are you getting the plasma? Is it donated locally and then it's isolated or where do you get it? So we had, we we're fortunate to have a study group um, at our hospital that has been doing studies from the very beginning um, with these patients with the different medications. They were the ones that organized the study with remdesivir. That's how I got to use it in the very beginning. Um, they were doing the convalescent plasma. Um, meaning that they were getting patients, testing them, making sure that they were a month out, retesting to make sure that their COVID test was negative at that time, um, and then collecting the plasma. Because it's a whole process to collect the blood. In fact, the very first patient we infused at our hospital was a physician that had gotten sick. And it was two of our other physicians that had already gotten sick and recovered that were able to donate their blood for this, for this doctor, who was a patient of mine. Now it's tons and tons of people that are able to do this, but it, it's a process to get the plasma. A lot of people have to donate their blood. We have to get a lot of plasma, um, but many, many people have had it and many people have donated their blood. So it's, um, we have a good supply. There are some patients that refuse it just as all patients. There are some patients that will refuse blood products. Um, I don't know how much it's helping them, but the patients have good, much better outcomes now than they did before. So I feel like there is, it is helping in some way enough to use it. Now, I will say that many COVID-19 patients hospitalized will also have secondary bacterial infections. So the other, the other thing that I'll give them is I put them on a five-day course of empiric secondary bacterial coverage, usually with like a cephalosporin and doxy, um, usually, just because many of them many of the ones that had that died they found was because they also had secondary bacterial infections do you do it at the same time then with the antiviral medication now not all i do you know i, I that's what i do um and previously the nih guidelines had recommended um that any patient sick enough to be admitted with covid should also have secondary coverage um it, they're constantly changing and adjusting but still the patients that i see that don't do well, oftentimes they don't do well because they'll get a secondary. Um, it's not always like flu is associated with getting staph pneumonias. 
but this one could be lots of different kinds of bacterial infections. It could be strep. It could be something in the, it's, it's more varied. So you don't have to do that, but that is something that I do. Not all, not it's dependent on the ID physician. Yeah. It's like the idea that the virus will cause a secondary bacterial infection. It's just your immune system being, being low. Um, and Five days is more than long enough to treat an ammonia, and it's usually mm-hmm. not long enough to do too much harm. So, and if I have, and if there's any concern, we I don't use it. But that is the other thing. So I would say it's it's oxygen, um, anticoagulation, steroids, plasma, remdesivir, and plus or minus um, antibiotics. Now there have been other medications that have been found to be helpful. Colchicine. Ultracine is still being used now. I don't use it as much, but men, but multiple of my colleagues will put patients in, immediately on colchicine because of its anti-inflammatory effects. Um, there is a new medication now that I just started using in the last week and a half um, called uh, baricitinib. This is a jack. This is a jack two inhibitor, which um, again stops. It's that it's that cytokine storm, that cascade of inflammation that you just keep on having to try to find ways to stop. Um, this one stops it in a different way, um, but we are using it on patients that are having sort of rapidly worsening respiratory status, so more like more likely to go on the vent. And I've seen great results with it just in the last week and a half. Notable patients are turned around notably with it, so that's good. And then the next, the biggest change um, for treatment is that just starting this week, we now have. Um, uh, Hold on, <laughs> this name is Bamlimivumab. Um, it's a monoclonal antibody that they're offering, that they're using in the emergency room. So patients that are that meet certain criteria with age and they're not needing oxygen, they're not they're they're a little sick, but they're not too sick. They can get an infusion of this monoclonal antibody, and then they're sent home to continue their home their home isolation, um, and. So far, it looks like it's helping. It's a too it's early to say, but it's it's approved. Um, you know, it's approved to use FDA. So that's at least something else. Mm-hmm. Isn't that similar to the medication that the president of the United States also got the um, antibody cocktail? Yeah. The, the so these monoclonal antibodies actually, I've been using a monoclonal antibody called um, Actemra for a while now, but only on very specific patients that I kind of can't use other medications for or their inflammatory markers, they're good, they're good, they're good. And then all of a sudden they explode. They, you know, you would have a marker that a normal range would be less than five. All of a sudden is 300 or, you know, 150, 200 overnight. And you don't have any clear explanation for why, for what changed. Um, sometimes in that case, I, that's when I have been using a monoclonal antibody. Um, but yes, that's we ha, we are finding that if we can if we can um, get the body to see the virus, try to kill it, and stop that that um, all that inflammation that happens with it, that's where people get into trouble and get really sick and, and pass. But the one that the president got, that's still under clinical trials, right? Yeah. Yeah, there, I mean, to, quite, to be quite honest, there are there are no um, fully FDA approved medications for remdesivir at this time. Everything is still um, sort of in the trial phases. I mean, we're it, it's just too new, and it's um, we really didn't have anything, so we've just had to continue to try to use whatever we whatever we can. 
April is Plaquenil standard of care now? No. So, um, in the, so I, I can say that for the first few months, um, lots of, lots of patients got Plaquenil. Um, and in fact, there were studies like in France where they were using Plaquenil and azithromycin together. And yes, I saw patients get better with it. You know, there was an improvement with it, which is why I thought it was um, really too bad that it then became a politically charged medication. Um, and because of the concerns of then being sued, if you use it, then suddenly everyone stopped using it. And it, at that time, we didn't have remdesivir. So there was a period of time that we really couldn't offer the patients anything other than some steroids and anticoagulation. Fortunately, this is a sort of a constantly changing field, but Plaquenil, I mean, the, the, the reason behind it is the same way that we're using the steroids, the same way that we're using the colchicine. It's stopping the inflammation in, a, in another way. And, I, and we have seen a lot of these patients with rheumatological disorders that are on these immunosuppressants, we haven't seen very many of them getting sick enough to be in the hospital with COVID. So that's, and they, we've, we've all noticed it, which is why now we're starting to use these medications that push down that immune response. So no, it is no longer standard of care. It is now a politically charged thing to order. And it's been, I don't, you know, it's been months and months and months since I gave a patient it. But they were also, I mean, to be fair, so we were using these things in a hospital setting, which means patients were on heart monitors. We'd be able to tell if they started having arrhythmias. We were regularly checking their QTCs to make sure that they weren't going too long. And if they went too long, we'd stop the medication. Um, but it seems like there are better medications right now for yeah, treatment. There are, there are definitely. Yeah. There are definitely. Aren't the numbers staggering, April? Like the numbers in the US, like we're a developed nation. Yet there's there there have been, according to the world meter on December 24th, 2020, which is today, and you know, Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, 18.9 million COVID cases in the US, 334,000 deaths in the US so far. 232,000 new cases daily, and 3,400 people die every day from COVID. These numbers are staggering. They are. Um, but, you know, that's one, that, that's what happens when you have a virus that affects, has a much stronger mortality in people that are uh, more advanced in age, because a lot, of these pay, a lot of these people have a lot of comorbidities at a baseline. And so when their body gets challenged and stressed in the way that COVID does, um, that's when we see these kind of mortality numbers. And also, I'm going to say that the United States has been much more lax to um, strictly restrict the movements and actions of their people. I mean, in, in Europe, you know, many, many countries were on a lockdown, which was a much less, which the United States had a much less strict lockdown than a lot of other countries in this world. You know, we have family in France that literally they, they had to stay only in their houses. They could leave their house for a half hour a day. They would get a little, a little um, permit in their paper delivered to their house every day that would give them a half hour leave where they could go to a store. Then it had to be within one mile of their house, the store that they could go to, to get food and rations, and then they had to come directly home. If they were caught outside of that time, they were fined. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's a level of, um, I mean, here, living in New Orleans, I can say that 
I mean, at this point now, restaurants are open at 75%. Um, you know, you see people out and about. Americans don't want to be um, restricted, as restricted in their movements as, but as many other countries have. So I think that's a large part of it. Many, many of these states didn't want to, um, because of, for economic reasons, they didn't want to restrict their businesses or the movements of people. Um, and it, quite simply, so I feel two ways about that. One, to be honest, it doesn't matter what you do. Eventually, viruses are going to make their way to everyone. So we're all we're do, you know what we're doing is we're slowing the spread. We're not stopping the spread. Um, but I think we have such high numbers because many people don't want to be to follow through with the restrictions necessary um, in order to to slow the virus more than it has already. Yeah. And, you know, as we see millions of Americans traveling right now for the holidays, you know, it's scary. We just saw a wave in the hospital after Thanksgiving. So it takes about two weeks to see the infections that, that come about from a, like, say, from Halloween or from an But in the last couple of weeks, I went from having zero to, you know, to three COVID admissions in a day to all of a sudden I had 10 or 12. And it was two weeks after Thanksgiving when a lot of, there were a lot of people here that were still having families of like 20 come together. We have a woman on the vent right now, a grandmother that had you know, a huge family visit for Thanksgiving. And then of course she, she got sick and it comes down to exposure. Yeah. I mean, like having quit my job recently and needing some money to like survive and fund this project, you know, I work nights in the hospital, you know, but like in the hospital, I mean, <clears throat> in California, the hospitals are getting full. We're not over yet, but we are definitely full. The ICU beds are full. And it's scary because the other night, I had two patients who were not doing well and they were at the point where they may, we needed to like maybe escalate their care, but there is only one BiPAP machine, one BiPAP machine left. And I know two patients are not doing well and I'm concerned they're getting to that level. Then who does that BiPAP machine go to? You know, these are decisions that we're faced where we never had to make decisions like this because we had so much. But now we understand, we see the limitations. I'm at the point where I'm thinking, what was that person's quality of life before? What will it be after if they survive? You know, these are things that I have to like think about talking to the family, like who gets it? It's awful. Well, you know, welcome to a resource limited setting. (laughs) (laughs) And it will continue. Like Christmas is today. What is it going to be in two weeks? Like, uh, you know, are, don't we all know January is going to be worse than now? God knows what February is going to be like. Well, so the one small glimmer, um, and there's there's stuff to be talked about with that too. The one thing that will or that could change the situation is antibodies. So the but that's it's a loaded conversation. So first, I, I would want people to understand that when you get sick with COVID. Um, your body makes natural antibodies and your body will naturally hold. So one, to be clear, there's lots of different coronaviruses. This is not the first coronavirus that ever existed. They've been around since humans have been around. So we, ha- we are exposed to coronaviruses all the time. And, you know, you get a cold and you get sick. And then three or six months later, you get another cold and you get sick. And then maybe, maybe six to 12 months later, you get another one. There's a reason for that. And that's because our body does not naturally retain antibodies to this infection. 
Um, it is something that our, they just slowly start to, to, to wait, to fade away. Um, our body sort of destroys them. They die. They just don't last. And even if they do last, they're, they're not protective for us. So if you get sick today, you will have some natural antibodies for three months or so. If you're lucky, maybe six. And that's what we've seen. We've seen people become reinfected after they, they were infected. They had positive testing, symptomatic. Then six months later, they had negative testing. Then maybe a few months after that, they come back positive again and clearly sick. So we know that people can be reinfected with this. We know that our body makes antibodies, but they don't sustain them. And so it is a wonderful thing that they're now starting to release vaccines for this. But my reservations are the duration of one, how long. So you hear, yay, the you know vaccines are effective at 100 days at 90%. Well, that's what your body does naturally. So that's that's not a surprise, though. What the question is, is how long will those antibodies last? Six months from now, a year from now, it, you know, are there even going to be antibodies? And are they protective at all? And the other thing about coronaviruses, one of the reasons why scientists have been concerned about coronaviruses causing this for a long time, this kind of a pandemic, is because they constantly are just slightly mutating the proteins on the outside of their capsule. So viruses go, you know, are transmitted with a little shell around them, and they have special proteins on that shell that our antibodies bind to. And the thing is, is that they they're just constantly changing those little outside proteins. So the vaccine, which I have been, I have gotten my first vaccine. Um, it's a two-part vaccine, so I'll get my second one in, in about two weeks. The vaccine that I already got may give me antibodies for three months, six months, um, but I. I think it is highly likely that vaccines are going to have to be either every six months or every 12 months. And they, they don't give 100% immunity. In fact, I mean, the FDA was considering and approving vaccines at 50% efficacy because 50% is still better than what we have now, which, which would be nothing. So the one glimmer of hope that maybe things will get better is that even if they're not really great vaccines, they're still going to slightly increase our herd immunity. Um, so maybe maybe it will get better. And you bring up so many important points. <laughs> um, and thank you. So in terms of, you know, like they say in Britain, the Britain variant has about 20 mutations. So if, with the virus continuing to mutate, I would imagine in the U.S. as well, do you feel like how do you feel like the virus has changed in, symptomatically in people in the U.S.? There are a couple of different presentations that I see in COVID. Um, some people, very interestingly enough, there's a whole section of people that will manifest their infection of COVID, not in their lungs at all, but all in the GI. They have a lot of um, stomach upset. They get diarrhea. They have kind of malaise. They don't feel well, but they're on room air and their chest x-ray is clear. Um, and treatment of those patients, are, are it's much less clear. We don't have nearly the uh, mm -hmm. experience or data to, to guide it. Um, but I, we don't know for sure. Is that a slightly different strain or are these just different manifestations? Because it's, it is something that's going to, it's not a surprise that it mutates. We know it's going to mutate. They always have. It's just the hope that whatever it mutates into isn't going to be more lethal than what it is now. Yeah. And I've been reading that it's uh, with the mutation, it's more viral, more people get sick from it, but the severity may be a little bit less. But the problem is so many people are getting infected that those who will get really sick are still getting really sick. 
So it's always a balance with viruses. Viruses can choose either to be really, really lethal and kill off their, well, they don't actually choose, but they sort of, it's, it's a balance. You only have so much energy or so much ability. So you can either be really, really lethal, but not that good at infecting other people. Or you can be, you know, really good at infecting other people and just not that lethal. The one exception to that would be Ebola, um, which was very good at, at spreading, although fortunately they were able to contain that one. Um, it is, so it is not a surprise that, that if it's mutating and it becomes even more infectious to other people, that it's not going to be quite as severe. Honestly, the people that are susceptible to having a bad course with this, it's because they have a lot of other comorbidities and there's not really a way to, to change that. We can't take away all their other comorbidities. The only thing really that they can do is to try to go through these practices of protecting themselves. And for us as a society to try to increase our herd immunity, which is either through infection or vaccination. Yeah, like taking care of yourself so that you don't get sick and you don't get others sick. Because if you have comorbidities or other medical issues, you're, you could still get really sick. People forget, though, that over half of the people that are infected with this virus have no symptoms at all. They're fine. Yeah, most, you know, many, I don't even, I couldn't even begin to count how many people in the hospital, um, you know, we find are COVID positive and they're there for some other reason completely. It's just, we screen everyone. So they're like, what? <laughs> I got COVID. Yeah. They're, they're, most, you know, more than, well, around 50% of the people are asymptomatic or maybe they have a slight cold. For many people, this is a coronavirus as it is, as all the others are. It's a cold or it's, or it's kind of a more severe flu. It's a much smaller portion of people that are going to do poorly. Um, aren't the statistics for the COVID vaccine trial pretty good, though? You know, they say that only eight out of the 18,198 people who were in the treatment group um, that got the vaccine uh, got infected with COVID as compared to the 162 out of the 18,835 in the control group, those who didn't get the vaccine, which is 0.8% as compared to 0.04% in the treatment group, making the efficacy of the COVID vaccine 95%. Do you believe those numbers? Um, so yes, I believe them. I, I mean, you'll, you'll hear that. Yes. The, the efficacy of the vaccine is, you know, 90 something percent, um, at, you know, at eight weeks or at, you know, at now we're up to a hundred days, but you have to remember that that's what the body does naturally is. is yeah. And, and then shortly thereafter, these antibodies go away. So the real question is, is the, is the vaccine able to mount an immune response, which is longer lasting and more protective than what our body does naturally? And it's very hard to say. Yeah. Only time will tell. You know, Dr. Anthony Fauci was saying that um, in order to reach herd immunity, that the number may be high, as high as over 75%. And I was calculating the numbers today. If there are 18.9 million COVID cases among Americans right now, and the population is 328.2 million total Americans, then only 5.7% of Americans have had the um, infection so far. And he's saying 75%. It's staggering. Yes. We're not even there. Yeah. I mean, that's, we have a, there's we have we have slowed the spread and so which is a good thing but yes when it comes to true herd immunity we're we're very very the only way that's going to happen is is through vaccinations and if the vaccinations are actually protective 
So um, many, many, many people are going to need to get this vaccine. And there's already a lot of hesitancy associated with the vaccine. Um, one, because to be fair, this vaccine has come out, you know, within, you know, seven months or so. Most vaccines take up to 15 years to get approved. Um, but people also have to remember that they've been working for years on a coronavirus vaccine in efforts from SARS and MERS. So they took a lot of the research from that and just then applied it over into the, um, the research of COVID-19. And, you know, these are these times are unprecedented in our developed, you know, days. These times call for different measures. And herd immunity is when enough of the population has been vaccinated or have gotten in the, the infection so that the population doesn't continue to get infected. Right. Um, and, you know, even if to me, I view it that even if the vaccine isn't that effective and six months from now, my antibodies go away. Maybe in those six months, I helped to reduce the infections of, you know, of one person, is it a 20 people, is it 100 people? But most importantly, maybe my daughter can go to school. You know, I, I want the kids to be able to go to school, to play, to play together, not be afraid of being around each other. And if vaccinations will allow that, then I'll step up and get vaccinated, you know, twice a year if I need to. I think it's for the human connection. Like millions of Americans are traveling, you know, right now for the holidays. You work in the hospital. I continue to work in the hospital, you know, so that I can survive. But whoever ends up in the hospital, we will treat or try to treat. But, you know, there there's a domino effect. Everyone affects one another. I'll, you know, although I can say, I miraculously, despite having treated, having hundreds, I, I don't even know how many COVID patients I've, I've, I've treated. Um, I haven't gotten sick um, that, I, that I'm aware of. After I saw that first patient that was admitted to the hospital that we had to take off isolation and I was exposed to, about a week later, I felt kind of poorly. Um, and I was sure that I'd had COVID. I was sure that it, it had passed through and, I, and I'd, I'd been fine. Um, a few months later, when they actually made antibody tests, um, I, my antibody test was negative. But I kind of figured that it had probably already passed. I'd already lost my antibodies by that time. But um, so I, I, I don't know if I have a, a reduced susceptibility to it. Um, but I've had more exposures than most any <laughs> than most people, um, and I'm still okay. And my family's been okay, fortunately. Um, but I'm a huge, hugely supportive of of vaccines, um, even if I have my questions about how long it will last for, how good it will do. It's still better than what we have, and what we have is very little. It's true. Um, you know, the severe allergic reactions that they talk about with the vaccine, it's pretty rare though, right? Um, you know, I actually had um, a patient, I've seen at least one patient and possibly two others that were in the vaccine trials that did have, um, that had a what looked like COVID. Um, uh, she she tested positive, but we all will after you're vaccinated. You've been exposed to some part of it, so you, so you you could test positive for it. Um, she looked like COVID, and yet um, it, it was a very it was a very unusual looking looking kind of manifestation of it. Um, we didn't really treat her because we couldn't. It didn't look like she hadn't had any clear exposure. She just had the vaccine, and she was within just a few days of, of having the vaccine. So yes, I've seen some patients that had reactions to it, 
they weren't severe. Um, they were just a couple that were sick enough to be admitted. Um, the vast majority of people, and I can say from my own experience, um, my arm was sore uh, for a day like it is with the flu shot. The next morning I was a little nauseous, but that passed. And speaking to the other doctors that all got it, um, really it's just a sore arm and then you're fine. Although to be fair with the with this Pfizer vaccine, um, the first vaccine only gives about 20% immunity. It's really the second vaccine that people can get a much stronger immune reaction with. But whatever it is, um, much like getting my shingles vaccine, it's just a day or so and then it goes away. Mm-hmm. And other common side effects are like headaches, you know, fevers and chills sometimes. And I guess with the vaccine, like when you get it, because they're concerned that of the rare, you know, severe allergic reaction, they make you sit there for 15 minutes in case that happens. And that's what we did. There was really just one one woman, I think, in Washington that had a severe reaction to it. And this is out of, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands. So it was one, which would, there's always there's always that risk anytime we're injecting something. Um, but yes, everyone has to sit there and, and have your few minutes. And most, I mean, most everyone so far, they, they started rolling out vaccines last week at my hospital. And most of the healthcare workers, many of them, it's interesting because there's still some of them that have refused, that are refusing vaccination, even in the healthcare workers. And it's just a matter of, of, I think people are nervous about it because it's a, it feels like it's a new vaccine. They want to kind of wait and see if, <laughs> if the other people are okay with it. Um, and then, I, but I, in talking to people, my neighbors and just random people, most people I think are excited about the vaccine and are looking forward to when it comes out. I mean, it's everyone's right to choose, but, but the issue is that it can really help, you know? It could, it, it could help. It's, I think it's the only way for our humanity to get back to what we consider to be normal, meaning yeah. to to be around another person within three feet and not be afraid to breathe in their air. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much what people are now. Because there's going to be a lot of post-stress, you know, after this, you know, like PTSD from COVID-19 or, or anxiety and depression. Already, yes. And, and it's important to remember that the vaccines aren't going to take away the requirements of masking and hand hygiene and social yeah. distancing. The vaccines are really just going to be to try to add another layer of slowing, increasing the herd immunity um, so that we have fewer new cases. But it's not like as soon as you get the vaccine, you can suddenly be around, you know, any, you, it, it doesn't, it's not going to take away our need to do what we're doing already. In the U.S., you know, for us, you know, we started really seeing COVID-19 in March. Right. It's the end of 2020 right now. And hospitals are all concerned that we're still going to run out of PPEs. Yeah. We, we just this last week ran out of the blue gowns again. And so now we're back to using the clear sheets that are kind of like garbage bags. Um, and then we have some of the yellow ones. But you, you see, we run out. We regularly yeah. we're running out of one thing or another because if you have to use it with every single patient you see, and I mean, we're, we're no longer changing them each time except for the gloves because the idea is that all these patients have the same thing. And so you're really protecting yourself from them. Um, but it's all these things are not limitless. The supply has very limited um, amounts. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's frankly, it's scary, you know, like at nighttime when I work, I'm the only like doctor in the hospital besides for the ER doctor for the whole hospital. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like, please take care of yourselves and so that we can take care of each other. And, 
save the hospital for those who are who really need it and are severely sick. But there's a prevention factor to this. We can all do our part. I was going to say, you know, honestly, the most important thing is to wash your hands. People, people don't appreciate when it comes to a virus, and the, and the vast majority of the transmission of the COVID virus is really droplet, um, which means you you touch something, you touch a doorknob, you touch you know fill in the blank, and then you rub your eye or you touch your nose. I mean, the, that's really how these viruses are transmitted. Yes, if someone's actively coughing and you breathe in right and you're near them, um, yes, the mask is is hugely important also. But if people will just wash their hands on a regular basis, it's it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And for coronavirus, isn't washing hands actually uh, more effective than the hand sanitizer spray? Um, honestly, both are recommended by mm-hmm. the state. So it's, it's, it depends on where you are and what you have access to. In general, soap and water has always been preferred. Um, but the, you know, even by CDC recommendations, hand sanitizer is, is appropriate. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ferguson. It was so um, interesting and amazing to talk with you. And thank you for informing us. My pleasure. And, and um, you know, just know that there's a lot of really, um, there's a lot of people working to try to care for the sick people here in this infection. And this is, this is just you know, Mother Nature doing her thing and, and we'll get through it. This is just a matter of finding ways to, to care for people and um, you know, there'll be more infections down the road. Know that there are people that are actively trying to make this better. And maybe we can get through it together. Yeah, absolutely. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. For more information, visit our website, drlostorfound.com. Don't forget to subscribe 